interestingly, coyotes are more likely to be found in the sort of higher income uh, neighborhoods, which I thought was kind of interesting. I suspect it has something to do with how lawns are distributed and how prey species are sort of attracted into these um, kind of wealthier neighborhoods. You are listening to Hey, podcast listeners, thanks for joining us for this um, mini episode. When we started planning out season two, we recorded interviews with a whole bunch of people. And this was like a year, year and a half ago. And what you've been hearing this season two have been us putting together interviews or other forms of recorded stuff, of recorded stories into episodes that go together thematically. And then Tony and me sitting down and talking about them, usually with a guest host. We're almost done with season two. We've got uh, another episode coming up that we're working on right now about mid-sized omnivorous mammals that like to live with us. Think raccoons, skunks, civets in Southeast Asia, possums, both the ones they have in Australia and the opossums in the United States. While we're working on that, we wanted to post one short interview we had that we just for for whatever reason haven't managed to fit into any other episode, but we thought was really neat. Uh, so this is an interview with Seth Magley, who is the director of the Urban Wildlife Institute of Chicago's Lincoln Park Zoo. You might remember Dr. Magley from an episode we recorded and posted back in August of 2016 called Fruit Bats, Prairie Dogs, and Sausage Weasels, where he talked about his research into urban prairie dogs, which kind of blew our minds because they're not like vacant lot dogs that are prairie dogs, but still there they are. And in that same interview, when we interviewed him, the first part of it was actually about the work of the Urban Wildlife Institute. So now we're going to listen to that interview about the Urban Wildlife Institute. Before we do, just some reminders. Please make sure, uh, if you like the podcast, to tell people you like it. Rate it highly on your podcast app of choice. Please post about it on Facebook, snap about it, post about it on Instagram, tweet about it, let your friends know about it through any means possible and necessary so that more people can discover the Urban Wildlife Podcast. Uh, and please leave us some comments on your podcasting app of choice so that we can hear more about what you think. You can also write us an email at urbanwildlifecast at gmail.com, tweet at us at urbwildlifecast, uh, and find us on Facebook and leave some comments or messages there. Here's one comment from listener Rye from Perth, Western Australia, who said he just listened to the airport podcast uh, and then remembered an article about echidnas and other Aussie wildlife at the Hobart Airport in Tasmania straying onto the runway sometimes. And sent us a link to a great article about that. Um, and we'll tweet out and post that article about Tasmanian wildlife on airport runways. And also, Rye recorded some observations about Aussie possums and other stuff that we're going to get into that upcoming possums, etc. episode. So without further ado, here's our interview with Seth Magley, the director of the Urban Wildlife Institute of Chicago's Lincoln Park Zoo. Sure, I'm Seth Magley. I'm the director of the Urban Wildlife Institute at the Lincoln Park Zoo. So the Urban Wildlife Institute is a research center that has a um, a pretty simple but very difficult um, challenge. We've sort of set ourselves to do the research necessary to allow for humans and wildlife to coexist in cities around the world. So our research takes a lot of different forms, but that's the common thread throughout is to try to make cities a place where we can conserve biodiversity, where we can teach people about wildlife, and we can enhance the ability for animals and people to coexist in, in space. You have a million things that would be fun to talk about, but I'm going to pick just a, one or two of them. 
what I wanted to, to start with is your um, monitoring stations network. Um, so can you talk a little bit about sort of the the idea, it's, it's where this idea came from and, and what the network of monitoring stations is? Yeah, where the idea really came from was that we started assessing the state of what's known about urban wildlife. And what we came to realize was that usually people study one species for usually a couple of years, you know, the duration of a graduate project. They publish that work and they move on. And what we realized was that we're really missing out on a lot of opportunity uh, because there's a lot of things we can't learn about unless we study for a much longer period of time. And also, we thought that by studying one species at a time, we're really missing out on understanding all the interactions between the species, the actual ecology of the system. So we set out to build the sort of most thorough, most widespread, most long-term uh, wildlife monitoring network that we could build in the Chicago area. And what we have now is we have about 120 field stations all around the city where we use motion-triggered cameras to study mammals. We use bat detectors to study bats. We count arthropods. We do bird counts. We try to really understand as many different groups of urban wildlife as we can. And then, as I said, we can actually understand the system as a system, as sort of an ecosystem where the parts are interacting with each other, how the birds influence the bugs, how the bugs influence the mammals, and sort of all throughout. So we do a couple things that are kind of unique. One is that we actually collect data in all seasons. So we're out there in the winter, we're out there in the spring, summer, and fall to try to understand those seasonal interactions. And then also there's no end date to this project. Uh, when we're trying to understand things like, for example, how species adapt to urban landscapes, well, that takes generations and generations. So we have to really keep collecting those data as long as we can. Um, the exciting thing about this project is that the idea is starting to catch on. And just this last few months, we actually have identified some partners in some other cities that are going to set up their own uh, monitoring networks that are the, sort of the same idea, long-term multi-species. And we're going to be comparing data across cities. So we're really at the introductory part of building a nationwide urban wildlife monitoring network. So we've already got cameras that are operating in Madison, Wisconsin. Uh, we're very close to getting some on the ground in Indianapolis, Indiana, so sort of Midwestern right now. But we've got partners that are interested that are sort of in the process of getting things up and running that are in places like California, New York, Colorado, um, other sort of cities around the country. So we're really hoping it's going to kind of snowball. And then in time, we'll really have good coverage across the nation and then eventually, who knows, the world. Is there something that anything you'd like to highlight that sort of jumped out at you when, when you started looking at the results coming in? Yeah, so one of the papers we actually published most recently had to do with the role of socioeconomics in driving these wildlife communities. We sort of started off knowing that, well, the distribution of the parks and the forest preserves and the golf courses, that's going to play a big role. And we sort of looked at, oh, things like the distribution of road networks that may be a hazard to animals. Uh, but we did a study recently where we actually started looking at socioeconomic data like the per capita income of different neighborhoods or the housing age of different neighborhoods. And we found that those were actually really critical um, in shaping these wildlife communities um, and sort of explained some of the variants in the species that the more biological variables couldn't. So it really, I think, shows us that the way we build cities is really powerful and it really has a huge impact on which wildlife species are found in which neighborhoods. What's exciting about that, right, is that we can change it from a sort of an urban planning standpoint if we want to attract certain rare species, if we want to repel certain nuisance species. Knowing exactly which neighborhoods attract which kind of species is incredibly valuable information for that. So um, I thought that was pretty unexpected and, and pretty cool. So interestingly, coyotes are more likely to be found in the sort of higher income uh, neighborhoods, which I thought was kind of interesting. I suspect it has something to do with how lawns are distributed and how prey species are sort of attracted into these um, kind of wealthier neighborhoods. 
but I thought that was pretty interesting that these uh, these coyotes, who we sort of think of as being very reclusive in the city and sort of keeping away from people, are being more attracted to the kind of upscale parts of town. When did you start monitoring, I guess, Chicago bat populations? It was a couple of years ago, I think. I think it was probably 2013 or so. Has has White Nose swept through Chicago yet? It has not, and that's actually one of the reasons we wanted to set up our bat monitoring is we want to get a sense of what the bat community looks like before White Nose kind of moves through the Chicago metropolitan area because it really hasn't yet, but we expect it will probably in the next few years. Um, can you describe how you monitor for bats? Yeah, so we use uh, ultrasonic detectors, so they're just acoustic devices that can record the echolocation sounds that bats can make that we can't hear, and they can identify them to species based on the structure of those calls. And we sort of rotate those around the city to get a sense of where different species are distributed. And then the next step of that research that we're really just working on now is that we're trying to uh, get a sense of where they're actually roosting and um, try to get a sense of, uh, you know, where they're sleeping. And then can we collect potentially some fecal samples that will give us a sense of stress and health. Um, but right now we're mainly doing this passive acoustic monitoring, which is, um, you know, we like to do more non-invasive research when we can. We're sort of concerned about the welfare and the conservation of these species. So if we can avoid trapping and handling them, uh, we prefer to do that, and these uh, passive monitors allow us to do that. That's awesome. I want to get one of those for my roof. Okay. Yeah, that's um, great. We actually have put them on roofs, including actually in some of the skyscrapers downtown, uh, which I think is pretty cool. How Well, that's, that's interesting. So do the bats get up to sort of the, the high levels of skyscrapers? Yeah, we do actually. We are able to detect some of them up at those levels uh, at times. Um, I think we only have one monitor up that high, but I believe we have detected some bats on it. Hey, podcast listeners. Thanks for listening to our interview with Dr. Seth Magley of the Urban Wildlife Institute of the Lincoln Park Zoo. I wanted to provide a little bit of an update since it's a little more than a year since we talked to him. Um, I checked the white nose disease distribution maps or detection maps. It doesn't look like it's reached Chicago yet. For background, this is a fungal disease that's been wiping out hibernating bats of species that tend to hibernate together in groups. And so what the disease does is it infects the bat's um, nose and affects their wings and affects their skin, basically. And probably because it's just so damn uncomfortable, they wake up in the middle of hibernation uh, and when they wake up, they burn too much energy. Uh, and since bats in January, they can't really fly back outside and catch some more moths to lay down some more fat. So basically, by waking up during hibernation because of this irritating fungal infection, uh, they starve to death. And so it's been wiping out bats, uh, especially, let's say, in the Philadelphia area, little brown bats, um, and lots of other parts of the country as well. Uh, and so it has not, thankfully, yet reached Chicago, although with this kind of thing, it's sort of only a question of when. One more thing before we wrap up. Some of you guys might be going to the International Urban Wildlife Conference June 4th through 7th in San Diego, California. Unfortunately, Tony and I can't make it. A combination of it being all the way in San Diego uh, and we're in Philadelphia. And we have uh, jobs during the week we can't get away from, um, other kinds of obligations. But uh, please let us know um, if you are going to be heading out there. We want to hear more about it. Maybe we could convince someone to record some interviews while you're out there or otherwise hype the podcast from the meeting. So please tweet at us at HerbWildlifeCast. Write us an email um, if you're going at UrbanWildlifeCast at gmail.com. And hey, keep using those as ways to get in touch with us for whatever other reason. 
please like the podcast on your and rate it highly and leave some comments on your podcasting app of choice. Please tell all your friends about it. Um, and please stay tuned because we've got an exciting episode coming up about skunks, palm civets, possums in Australia. Uh, and we'll work in a little bit of information about our North American possums as well. <laughs> <laughs>